This is a new series. It's the search for significance. Sometimes we think life is all about being a success. And I want to suggest to you over these next few weeks and show you that not only can success be empty, it can often be destructive as well. And that you're far better off committing your life to discovering significance than success. How would you like a salary of this amount? Anyone in? Sheikha? How would you like a salary of that amount, Sheikha? It wasn't a hard question. You're going, hang on, hang on, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. Would you like a salary like that, Sheikha? How would you like that salary like this particular person had per week? And that's not the only thing they had as their claim to fame. They also had this claim to fame, which I'm not sure that it's a bragging point, but in some circles it is. They've made love to over a thousand women. And they were quite happy for the world to know that too. Not only that, they didn't do it in a corner. It wasn't like they were unknown. They were world famous. People came from all over the world because of the fame of this person. They were also a world leader. Not just a world leader, but a world leader not only in politics, but in the fields of botany and biology. And they wrote books on these things that were considered to be, in their day, the standard textbooks in these fields. So you get the impression this is someone who's fairly unique. But not only that, not only were they scientifically minded, not only did they have this extraordinary salary, which if you... For many of you, you would have done the math on it already. It equates to $60 million a year, an annual income of $60 million a year, which they had throughout their lifetime. But they also used the other side of their brain. And I can never figure out whether that's the left side or the right side of the brain. But they wrote over a thousand hit songs. A thousand hit songs. Not that there were charts or record stores when they did this but these songs were sung by many people around the world and they were also a published author in the field of particularly philosophy they wrote over 3,000 gems of philosophical wisdom now you would have to say, by any measure, this person was a success. A salary, $60 million a year, published author, loved and adored by women. But there's a yet. Yet. This person got to the end of their life and they tell us that they were utterly unfulfilled by it all. Not only that, they were deeply frustrated 
that it had all been for nothing. If you have Ecclesiastes open on your lap, you'll realise who I'm talking about. We're talking about the author of Ecclesiastes, this book of the Bible. We'll come to this in a moment. But in case you think this kind of story where people have unbelievable amounts of money coming in, unbelievable claims to fame, that that would bring you happiness and a sense of purpose. In in case you think this is isolated, it's not. In fact, this person's clearly not the only one. This fellow is Anton Walker. He was an NBA all-star player, recruited quite young. I think he played for the Boston Celtics and he earned throughout his career, he retired uh, mid-30s or yeah, around, around mid-30s, he had made $110 million through his career. How's that? Pretty good? $110 million. By the time he was 38, none of it was left. Not a dime. He'd gambled it away. He'd squandered it on women. He'd taken faulty advice. And his life was empty and shallow. He now lives in a home with five other people because he can't afford to rent a place himself and he's not the only one in fact how about this because I remember asking my children what they wanted to be when they grew up and somewhere between I think we were talking about this with Tyrone the other week he wanted to be an Australian test cricketer and we said are you the best cricketer in your school he said no not at all are you the best batsman you know no I can no not really and you sure you want to be an Australian test cricketer There could be a bit of a journey you have to make here anyway. But he just saw that these guys went out there and dazzled on camera and got paid a lot of money and he thought, I'll be that. And it doesn't quite work that way. In fact, statistically, between 60 and 80% of athletes in the NBA, that's the American Basketball Association, the highest paid sporting arena in the world, and the NFL go bankrupt within five years of retirement despite making, on average, $5.15 million in their playing career. That's just an average player. And $1.9 million per season, respectively. Now, all of these people failed to find significance. They found success, but they failed to find significance. And I want you to begin to think about the difference between those things. Let's come back to the man I introduced you to. His name is Solomon. Solomon means peace. You may have heard of the word shalom. It's kind of a a variant of that. Solomon only found what he was looking for in the last moments of his life. Weeks, months, maybe. Solomon hurt a lot of people throughout his life. In fact, he hurt thousands of people in his pursuit of what he thought was going to make him satisfied. But in the last moments of his life, he went from being a flamboyant playboy 
to becoming what he calls a preacher. And we can read that and not pick up on the shock this must have been to his audience. You can imagine being one of the thousands of people that he had hurt, either by extortion, demanding from them. In fact, when he died and his son took over, there was a huge national referendum uh, to, to his son begging that the level of taxation extortion be relieved, to which that's another story. But Solomon was not popular in his own country. And so when he calls himself in the opening verses of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the one who can tell you what is right, is what a preacher should do. And I, hope, I hope we go some way to doing that today. You can imagine what a shock that would have been. So let's have a listen to what he had to say. This is the opening verse of Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Look at the next verse. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. What's he saying? He's saying life is vanity or pointless. There is no point to life. Now, I want, I want to point out to you, as most people here who read their Bible and have probably read Ecclesiastes, you've probably been to funerals where Ecclesiastes is more often than not quoted along with Psalm 23. You've probably been to situations where Ecclesiastes is cited and there's some verses that are taken out of here and they're made into fridge magnets. I want to highlight something to you that you may not have picked up. When, when Solomon is writing this account, he's telling us of his journey as a playboy throughout his life. This is his journey to significance. Now what does that mean? That means 99% of what he's about to describe to you is wrong. It is an utterly wrong perspective. It's told from his distorted perspective. When he was making love to a thousand women, he had 800 concubines. Now, a thousand, by the way, is conservative because he had hundreds of wives. And here is this man in the midst of this distortion of what life was all about, so he thought... And he's now going to tell us what he was thinking as he was going through this. And he opens up by saying, I just thought life was pointless. There's no point to life. Life is utterly meaningless. It's whatever you can make of it. And you won't be able to make much of it because it's pointless. Vanity of vanities. Now, he was able to enjoy a level of comfort in his pointlessness that most of us will never attain to. So, I want you to realise this before you go quoting Ecclesiastes and pulling out a verse here or there and making it your life first. Just be very careful because here's the statement, and please don't take me out of context because if you do, I'm in a lot of trouble. Most of Ecclesiastes is wrong. It's wrong. 
You'll find statements in Ecclesiastes that I've heard people quote and build entire doctrines on. For example, someone famously wrote a book um, called You Need More Money and the whole basis of that book is built on a verse in Ecclesiastes where it says money is the solution to every problem. That's in Ecclesiastes. Does anyone realise, wait a minute, that's not right. But can you see from a distorted perspective... That's what people think. They think money is the answer to their problems. So let me tell you right off from verses 1 and 2, this preacher is telling you that most of what we're about to read here in the Bible is wrong. You can see how that could be taken out of context and I get in a lot of trouble if you misrepresent me. It's about his perspective and God has faithfully recorded this man's whacked, distorted perspective. Life is not vanity of vanities. It's just not. But it is if you have a wrong perspective. In fact, when I hear people say, well, the whole point to life is just to make the most of it and be happy. I have to think, yeah, I can see how you think that's what life is all about. Because you don't have a perspective that helps you to see anything different about life. Is that what life is all about? Now here's the frustrating thing about Solomon. And King Solomon really frustrates me. I don't know if you ever read King, uh, the story of King Solomon and you started yelling at your Bible. Like, don't do that. <laughs> Here he is, King Solomon. He didn't start off wrong. In fact, he started off as a 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old king when he was first appointed king. So if you're in that ballpark of age, this is when Solomon was first made king from a very young age. And the first 10 chapters of Proverbs are written as a record of his father, King David, writing to his son. And when you read Proverbs chapters 1 to 9 in particular... You read this expression, my son. And who is my son? It's this guy, Solomon. Of all the people that had the best education, it was Solomon. He had the best education. And yet, here's the point. The best education doesn't make you a good person. I'm staggered. Let me just deviate from my notes a bit here i am staggered how many people think that if they can send their child to a christian school the christian school will make them into a christian (laughs) having been pastoring this church for 20 years and seeing kids who go to the christian school i can tell you that formula ain't necessarily so solomon had King David as a dad. The Bible describes King David as the only man recorded in all of Scripture who had a heart after God. And yet King Solomon blew it. And he blew it big time. But he didn't start out that way. He started out right. He started out with a heart like his dad. He started out, we find this in 1 Kings chapter 3, we read from verse 5, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. (laughs) Now that's a good life verse. Can you imagine God appearing to you 
and saying, okay, Josh, what do you want? What do you want me to do? What would you say? Lex, what would you say? Yeah, see, you're not ready. God's not going to appear to you in a dream. You're not ready. You need to dream more or something. I don't know. <laughs> Can you imagine? What would you say? What would you say? God appears to you and goes, okay, you know how it works with the genie? I'm not a genie. I don't give you three. I give you one. One wish. What do you want? What do you want? Not that he said wish. But what, what do you want? It's actually not a bad question to ponder, is it? Because a lot of people are utterly miserable, they're utterly discontent, and they don't know why. And here's God saying to Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? And I'm going to hazard a guess that most people would answer that question with something that equals success. I want to be the prettiest. I want to be the richest. I want to have the most toys. I want to, whatever it is, success. It's in that. But Solomon didn't. That's not what he said. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness. That is an important point. You got a Bible, you might want to underline or highlight that one. Solomon knew how to invoke the blessing of God. He knew how to invoke the presence of God. He knew what it took to get God's attention and favor. There it is. He walked before you faithfully. So Solomon knew that. He walked before you in faithfulness and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart. Toward you. This is a really profound point. I'm going to talk tonight about walking with Enoch in Colossae. That'll be tonight. And here we have this expression, David walked with you. And it's an interesting expression. I'll tease it out a little bit more tonight when we look at the life of Enoch. But here is this expression being, you see, when you walk with someone on a journey, you open up your heart to them. And, and, and the Bible invites us to walk with God, to walk with Him. And the point is that in life we should open up our heart to God. But you know, when you don't, can you imagine walking for 20 kilometres with someone and they didn't say a word to you? What would you think is going on? Okay, if you're a bloke... You probably think nothing's going on. <laughs> so let me ask women, if you were walking with someone for 20 if you were walking with someone for 20 seconds and they didn't say something to you, what would you think? They are really angry with me. Angry, grumpy. And most of the bloke going, where did that come from? And so when we walk with God, we, were, we are expected by God to open up our heart. And that's what David did. And that's what Solomon is saying David did. He opened up his heart to God. And it says, And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son 
to sit on his throne this day. That's the first half of that verse, the last, um, and, uh, the last half of that verse, verse 7. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child, somewhere between the ages of 16, 17, 18, 19. I do not know how to go out or come in. What are we hearing? We're hearing a cry for help. We're hearing someone praying humbly. This is not a common thing for a man to express humility, and Solomon's doing it. So Solomon is expressing humility. Verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Verse 9, Give your servant, therefore, here's the request, Lex, this is what you should have said, Give your servant, therefore, understanding, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So what's he asking for? He's asking for wisdom, and it goes on in verse 10, and this is God's response. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. But why is Solomon asking for wisdom? He's asking for wisdom so that he can be a blessing to others, so that he can help others, so that he can, in the words of John Maxwell, add value to the lives of other people. And by the way, that's one of the essential components of this word, significance. That's the difference between success and significance. So this is the focus that Solomon had. He originally had a focus on being significant, which is thinking of others, considerate of others, helping others, adding value to the lives of other people. That was his original focus. That was his life focus. Why are you on this planet, Solomon? I'm here to govern people well and to protect them, to provide for them, to watch over for them, to make sure that justice is upheld. I'm here to be a blessing to others. That's a significant life. So Solomon started off with that focus, with significance. He had originally committed his life, as we see in this prayer, to serving others. Can I just say, by the way, when our Premier... Will Hodgman was installed as Premier, one of the first things he did was he took his entire parliamentary team, with the exception of one member who couldn't make it due to parliamentary business, down to St David's Cathedral and I was invited there. And he asked the Christian community of Tasmania for prayer for him as Premier of this state. And that passage is the passage he chose to read as he asked for prayer for this state. Just by the way. Now, as a result of Solomon committing his life to being significant, looking for significance, God promised to bless him with success as well. You can be significant and successful at the same time. You can. So it says in verse 11, And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself, Long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you 
has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. <laughs> Notice the second word of this verse, if. John Sands gave me a whole book on that word, if. He knows that I keep highlighting this whenever I see it in the Bible. And one day John came into my office and gave me a whole book on ifferisms. Ifferisms. That little word if, if you're into Greek, it's the word a, E-I-A. It changes everything, doesn't it? I will do this for you. If. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon did not live a long life. Let that be a clue. He died a relatively young king. Now here's what history tells us. Because if I was to ask you this question, and by the way, you can go to some really hip, cool, trendy churches right now, and probably today, they will use these words, success, happiness, wealth, prosperity, and they will say, they're all yours, God just wants to give them to you. And I'm not so sure. And here's why. History tells us that most people cannot handle success well. You know, one of the worst things that could happen to you, Jika Stepanovic, is if we gave you that 1.153846 million dollars a week, that would ruin you, wouldn't it? Yeah, you don't even believe it would ruin you. You said that like you said thanks to Grandma for the handkerchiefs last Christmas. All right, I won't pick on you anymore. I'll pick on someone else. For most people, if you received an exorbitant amount of money, it would probably ruin you. You know, internationally, people who win millions in lotto, internationally, not only lose it within five years, they are more in debt than they've ever been after the five years. That's internationally. In Australia, it's 18 months. Most people cannot handle success. It becomes their ruin. And you know this. You, you, we've seen the sporting stars. We've seen our heroes crash horribly because they can't handle success. It takes character to contain success and most people don't have it. Jesus said this, Matthew 16 verse 26... What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus also said this in Luke 8, 14. I want you to note how he describes the power of wealth and riches. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. The same verse is recorded in Mark chapter 4, verse 19, but this is how it's rendered. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So here's my question to you as we 
take a pause just here. Is your life focused on significant things or are you striving to be successful only? And I really want to challenge you over these next few weeks to consider, choose significance. Choose living a significant life. I've discovered this. People who are highly successful are often highly driven. And oftentimes they're highly driven because of some ache or deep pain they've experienced in their life. And as corny as it is, some of the most successful, highly driven people in the world are also some of the most deeply hurt. And if you've ever looked at the life of Adolf Hitler, there's somebody who achieved... And please don't misunderstand me. But in some measure, he achieved what he considered to be success. But he was a deeply, deeply disturbed and wounded man. Deeply disturbed. I don't want you to be deeply disturbed and I don't want you to remain wounded. I want to share with you another story of someone. He was from a wealthy family. And he graduated as a doctor from... Owens College, which is today called the University of Manchester. He did this in the mid, 18, uh, mid to late 1800s. But he never practised as a doctor. Instead, he moved to London to pursue a dream that he had to become a writer, much to the frustration of his parents, particularly his dad, who was a doctor. His parents were bitterly disappointed with him. This didn't work out well for him. He couldn't break through. He couldn't get any position with a newspaper or magazine or anything like that. And he ended up selling matches and newspapers on the street and eventually that didn't go well for him either. And so he became a homeless opium addict who lived under the bridge at Charing Cross, just on the Thames near London. This went on for years. Eventually, he got sicker and unhealthy, more and more unhealthy, ironic for a doctor. And his ache grew and grew. His parents were Christians. They loved God. And he was doing all he could to run away from his parents parents and their expectations of him and from the God that they introduced him to. Yet, despite this, he encountered the relentless love of the undying one, the one who never dies, the one who never ages. And one day, he took an old pencil he found on the street, he got some scraps of paper and he wrote an epic poem and he sent it into a magazine where a husband and wife who managed that, that magazine said, this is a masterpiece. And they tracked him down and found that who he was and, <clears throat> and they tried to clean him up and put him into a, uh, a place where he could detox, but it was too late. At the age of 47... He died of tuberculosis. He died broke. He died alone. 
And he went on to become considered the greatest poet England has ever produced. Before he died, he wrote a book of poetry. And that poem that he wrote on that scrap of paper that described his journey, because something happened under that bridge at Charing Cross. And he, he wrote about it in a poem called The Kingdom of God, The Kingdom of Heaven, sorry. And in this, one of his first poems that J.R.R. Tolkien read before it was published in 1917, and he says it became the inspiration, part of the inspiration for Lord of the Rings. This is how it opens. I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him. Down the arches of the years, it goes on. I fled him. Down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter of vistaid hopes, I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Deliberate speed, majestic instancy came on the following feet. And a voice above their beat, Nought shelters thee who wilt not shelter me. And the last verse, God replies to him as he describes his journey of running and running and running and running from God. And as he's running from God, we just read, he hears the sound of feet. He hears feet running after him as if he's being chased by hounds and he's the fox. And with these feet, he says, there came a gentle voice. You cannot hide from me. You cannot run from me. And the last verse, God replies to him. All which I took from thee, his nice house, his expensive lifestyle, I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. And he describes in this poem called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. How he tried to run from God. He went from being successful to losing it all and becoming a sick drug addict. At one point he was taken in by a prostitute who worked as a prostitute to keep him alive. And here Francis Thompson says that eventually he realised God had unleashed the hounds of heaven. And God himself was pursuing him and chasing him down. And here's my question as we link Francis Thompson with Solomon. The one who started off with that dream from God. The one who then went off and married 
800 wives when he was forbidden by God from marrying more than one. The man who then began to worship idols and build temples to idols as well as go to the temple each Sabbath to worship the God of his dream. It wasn't that he openly rebelled against God, it's that he was in church on a Sunday but at the nightclub on Saturday. He had a foot in both camps and Solomon, like Francis Thompson, realised the hounds of heaven are chasing me down. And it was in the final weeks or months of Solomon's life that he recorded Ecclesiastes. And here's my question for you. Are the hounds of heaven relentlessly pursuing you? You see, some of you are wondering, why am I here? What is life all about? How can my life count? And you need to know that your life is more than what your friends think of you. It's more than what you think. Rachel, Tasmania is too small for you. God has a purpose for your life that's bigger than Tasmania. He's going to use you to design that will capture the world's attention, literally. And there are others here. And God has got you here to be a blessing to others, but you are so busy, focused on yourself that you're missing it. Are the hounds of heaven relentlessly pursuing you? Perhaps you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. I want to invite you to do that now. Begin this journey to significance by surrendering your life to Christ. Will you pray with me, please? Father, I pray that you, or God, would come to each of us. Father, there are people in this place right now who don't even know who you are. And I pray, Lord, that the hounds of heaven, the pounding of their feet would be heard in their soul. That, Lord, they would recognize your relentless love in sending Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago to live and die and rise again for us is just as relevant now as it was then. And that, Lord, you can save a life. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you've done it with. I don't care how many times you've done it. I don't care who knows or who doesn't know. God wants to forgive you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to hold you in his arms, look you in the eye and say, Welcome home, my child. Will you turn around and come to him? You may feel like you're a million miles from him, but I've got to tell you the truth. The Bible says, and it's this beautiful word, repent, and it means you're one step away from God. One step, just one step. And it's a step that involves looking first. Just turn around and look at him. And you'll hear him saying, my child, come home. I forgive you. I'll cleanse you. And I'll put you on a path that will make your life significant. Father, I pray that each one of us would commit this year to being a year where we change trajectory, if we need to, to be people who live our lives significantly. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you.